The yellow walls trap the lingering smoke in the dingy room at the local Motel 6. Empty liquor bottles and tall, blue, discarded Bud Light cans littered the counters and floor. A pile of women's clothing sprawled across the bed. A balled-up black-and-white halter top came to rest atop a pair of cut-off blue jeans. A gaggle of hangers tore through the black trash bag that held the rest of this woman's stuff. This ripped trash bag and cracking plastic dollar store linen basket held her entire life. Containers that seemed much destined to break, just like we were. The cigarette butts filling three black ashtrays made the room reek of poison and discarded hope. She sat on the floor wearing a yellow spaghetti strap shirt, naked from the waist down. She had strawberry blonde hair with light white streaks through it and a three-leaf clover tattooed on her neck. Blood ran down the inside of her arm and slowly dripped from her pinky finger onto the matted carpet. Her eyes were fluttering open and closed. She was talking incessantly, but I could not make out anything she said. Hotels, parked cars, bathrooms, they were all home to me. Although I was intimately familiar with this setting, I felt oddly out of place as I looked around the room. This was not who I was supposed to be. When my eyes focused on the mirror, I could not recognize the person staring back at me. Those haunted demonic eyes glowing a burnt red scared me, and I saw my fear reflected right back at me. Here I was in this hell I had often tried to escape, but through my own inability to break free on my own, I found myself ensnared in it once again. Staring at the macabre figure in the mirror, completely ashamed of what I had once again devolved into, I heard three loud bangs on the door, followed by an authoritative, Carry police, open up or we're coming in. It didn't take long to find the drugs, so I went to jail. Best night of my life. Thank you for listening to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. Visit guyswhodostuff.com. You probably shouldn't Google that. All right. Welcome to the Guys Who Do Stuff podcast. I'm Joe with my co-host. Josh. And this is the show where we help you get unstuck, tell a better story, and have a good answer to the question, what are we doing? What are What are you doing today? Yeah. What are you doing today? What are you doing today? <laughs> I'm doing this. Yeah, me too. I'm real excited today because we have in the studio with us, Justin Garrity. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. Yeah. Really excited to talk to you and hear a little bit more about your story. We kind of heard what I think most people would describe as the rock bottom in the intro. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was your rock bottom. What do you think people mean when they say rock bottom? I think rock bottom is that place of, of just extreme hopelessness, despair. There's guilt, shame, and remorse all wrapped up in it. Where do I go from here? I don't know what I'm doing, where I'm at. Yeah, uh, I, w- I won't help, but I don't know how to reach out to get it. For mm-hmm. me, that was certainly my rock bottom. For me... When I was in that hotel room looking at that person in the mirror that I didn't recognize, yeah. at that point, I didn't have, I wasn't going to pick up my phone and call anyone that might have been a positive influence in my life. But at that point, I also recognized I had pushed God, the power greater than myself that I came to believe in, out of my life. And I think that was kind of the final straw that broke the camel's back. Yeah. So a little bit, give us a quick synopsis of what's happened since that point in the story. Okay, since since that point, I go to jail. I I get out of jail the very next day through some program they had for people that hadn't had many offenses. Mm-hmm. I go right back to healing transitions. 
Healing Transitions is a long-term residential peer-based recovery program for an underserved population. So it's a homeless shelter and we help people recover from drug addiction. Um, Went there, stayed there for 14 months. When I left there, I had a job as a project manager for a big construction company. I had never worked in construction my entire life. But by making these positive connections over that 14th month, by 14 months, by learning about the disease of addiction, by doing positive things, by helping others, I started meeting good people. And these good people had great jobs and they wanted to help me out. So I come out of Healing Transitions. I have this great job working as a project manager. We're a construction company. Um, During that time, I also started running a lot. So these are these positive changes I'm making in my life. I'm going downtown and helping the Brown Bag Ministries pass out food to people that are experiencing homelessness. I'm helping others in the program. I'm facilitating classes, doing stuff, learning about my disease, um, going to various recovery groups, uh, different meetings. Um, Come out of HT with this great job, work the job for a year. Fantastic company. Not really my passion. So I've, I've kind of evolved into this person that wants to help, sees the importance of kindness and compassion to others uh, because it's helped me in my journey so much. So I say, you know what, how, am I, how do I best help people? How do I keep staying in this field to help people overcome their substance use disorders? Well, let me go back to school. Let me go get a master's of social work degree. And so I, I take some kind of, I take a landscaping job, then I take a job in the kitchen, washing dishes. So not, maybe not the greatest jobs in the world, but something to you know, gets, bring some, uh, put some food on the table. Mm-hmm. Eventually I get a job with healing transitions as a volunteer coordinator. And I get, um, I get accepted into NC state's MSW program. So I work as the volunteer coordinator, healing transitions, trying to bring the community to see what we're doing up there. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I'm taking these great classes, learning about, um, social work, learning about how to better help people, uh, overcoming obstacles and stuff like that. So then uh, about a year after doing the volunteer work, I get the opportunity to work as the rapid response administrator. That's the program I currently oversee. The rapid response program sends peer support specialists. That's people that have lived experience in addiction and are now in recovery. And they send them out with Wake County EMS to follow up with people that have overdosed on opioids. We go out there, we try to build a relationship with folks, and then we just try to link them to whatever service that they need. It's not a, hey, come to Healing Transitions program. If they want to come to HT, that's fine. But we're trying to figure out what best fits their life that they need at that moment. Mm-hmm. A lot of people need food. So we're trying to get them to a place that, uh, a pantry, get them a food box. Yeah. Some people need housing. So let's get them to some place that they can live. It's hard to beat an addiction when you don't have food or a house to go to. Right. Um, kind of like the base human desires that exactly. kind of override, like, yeah, I need to eat and sleep and have shelter. And <laughs> right. It's kind of a hierarchy of needs. Right. Um, so anyway, recently just graduated in the NC state's MSW program. Uh, wow, congratulations. May. Thanks. What is that? MSW uh, master of social work. Nice. Yeah. So it allows me to operate in various different fields in the helping profession. Um, my girlfriend's actually also a, a social worker. She works out in Butner at Central Regional Hospital, helping folks up there overcome and get in recovery and stuff. Yeah. Is this is Butner a place or just a prison? <laughs> <laughs> it is a little town. It has a prison and it has this um, hospital that deals, helps people with mental health stuff. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Is it any coincidence it's next to the prison? Um, I, I, I don't know. I guess so. Maybe. We what just we just learned Butner existed last week oh, okay. on, a, on a podcast. Yeah. Do they, have, do they have a story a, about the prison? Yeah. Do they have a food line up there? What's their grocery store? <laughs> I don't know if they have much up there. Must be a small town. I think they have like a subway or something like that. And maybe, that's about it. Maybe a Piggly Wiggly. Yeah. What started as a very dark situation, you found your way to navigate through. And now there's so much cool stuff in there. Like, I think people, one, if you're in a situation where you're at rock bottom, talking to somebody who's been there and understands it mm-hmm. probably means a lot more than, you know, just whoever might be the first person on the scene that mm-hmm. might be thinking wrongly about what they're feeling and having that empathy must be a big deal. But so how long have you been at healing? So it used to be healing place, but now it's healing transitions. Yep. And so how long have you been there? So I've been with healing transitions two years now, maybe two and a half years, awesome. something like that. My story is no different than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. A lot of people hit a rock bottom, get involved in recovery and do well. Access is key. So if I didn't have a place I could go to like healing transitions, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. You know, I, I think I still might be living out of the car in the Walmart parking lot. Sure. Having to go inside to brush my teeth and looking at the mirror. So this was the really difficult part. You go inside to Walmart to brush your teeth. You're in a jumpsuit that is too small that you've taken from your dad who used to work at Piedmont Airlines. You haven't been showered in a week or so. And you have to look in the mirror and kind of mean mug people that are looking at you because they're like, what is going on with this guy? Hmm. But it's not difficult to mean mug those people. What's difficult is to look in the mirror. Because mm. I grew up in Cary, North Carolina. I played castle soccer at, you know, travel castle soccer, Apex High School. We won the state championship in soccer my senior year. Yeah. I had good grades. I went to college. I went to UNC Wilmington. Eventually, I graduated from UNC Wilmington. I took the six-year route. Um, <laughs> But two years after that, I'm homeless living in a parked Civic in a Walmart parking lot. Well, at least you had a Honda. That's dependable. Nah, that's a dependable <laughs> car. <laughs> it's kind of the truth. That thing would run. What was your uh, What was your home like? Like or your home life like? Oh my gosh, it was great. Yeah. Two loving parents, great sister. Everyone's athletic. You know, we had we went boating on Lake Jordan. You know, a really idyllic childhood. Yeah. I think what kind of started it for me was I'm a redheaded kid. I felt weird in seventh grade. I think we all kind of feel weird and awkward oh, man, in seventh grade. But, right. but you weren't a stepchild? Not a stepchild, <laughs> just a just a regular just red, a red, just a ginger. Just a ginger. <laughs> so I like to, you know, had to put sunscreen on when I went out on full moon nights because it's <laughs> <laughs> a little moon bird. <laughs> so anyway, in seventh grade, I, the kid down the street, he's in ninth grade. He listens to heavy metal and he smokes pot and he's cool. We had these motorized scooters that we would take around, around Lake Pine. Mm-hmm. And we'd, we'd moon people. And we'd, you know, we'd be on these scooters <laughs> moon like, people. Like, like lift scooters? Yeah, like the thing yeah, a little bit faster than those yeah. things. Uh, but yeah, just cruise around mooning people. We had a, a there was a real funny time when this guy is <laughs> a roller baiter, blader. He was like a hardcore guy. Like he had the. Back when t- like, there was like a short window of like a year and a half when rollerbladers were like, take us seriously. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like the tight stuff, he like the yeah. long blades and just like getting it. Right. 
And I remember he rode us down and smacked my friend's butt so hard that it left <laughs> fingerprints. You know? And we were dying. This is the age of jackass. And, you know, we yeah. were just dying. My kids say that the kids in middle school now call that five star. Like if you smack somebody and you leave a finger oh. print for each five one, you've, you've been five starred, which I think is a very middle school kind of mean. Yeah, absolutely. Like who is hitting you that hard? Right. Seriously. Man. <laughs> so anyway, he says, hey, man, you want to smoke some weed? And I'm a weird, I feel weird. Um, yeah, why not? Let me be like this kid. And really liked it, you know, kind of changed my perception a little bit. Didn't feel so weird, felt connected, felt like I had a friend. Mm. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it's not like I go from weed straight to pills or anything like that, but it was a slow progression and it was fun for a while, right? Smoking pot with some friends. Then you get in high school, you're doing that some more. Now you're drinking a little bit more. Now you're maybe experimenting with like Adderall and things like that. And then pain pills start making their way in and yeah. a little bit of cocaine make, starts making its way in. What happens though, is your social group becomes getting a lot smaller because what I was noticing was I was one of the guys that other people would kind of stop drinking at the party or they drink a little bit, but I would try to drink to excess. So I would try to drink till I forgot or just blacked out or whatever. Mm. Um, and there weren't a lot of people that were doing that. So the people that were doing that, we're starting to hang out with each other. And then we're starting able to get a little bit more drugs and stuff like that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, hey, I got a 3.5 GPA. I'm on this great soccer team. You know, I, I worked two jobs in high school while doing this stuff. You really can't tell me anything. Drugs are fine. I'm, I'm able to work through them. Mm. Well, that progressed through college and it only got worse, right? I, I start getting real bad off on cocaine. Um, you know, we do start doing a lot of hallucinogens. It's kind of a funny story. We Halloween one year, I think it was 2009. I dressed up as a zombie and we had taken a bunch of acid. <laughs> right. And I had the bright idea. Like I was like, I'm, so I, at one point I'm like, all right, I got to get out of this place. And so I get in my car and I'm driving, right? Not good. But anyway, I come, I come to a stoplight and the light turned purple. So I went exactly um and then the police you know it, the police it was an easy catch for the police officer and of course i'm like stop but looking at the mirror and there's the flashing lights and i'm like man that's pretty cool you know not, not really putting two and two together are you dressed like a zombie yeah dressed like a zombie you should have oh. seen the mugshot i mean it was great mugshot oh my gosh and you know how they put those papers out with people's mugshots in it yeah yeah, yeah it was a, I was like kind of proud of that one. People are like, this guy had a rough night. Yeah, this is tough. <laughs> this is tough. Yeah. Um, so anyway, it was, it was kind of stuff like that. What, what happened with me is I started, I worked in the restaurant industry. Mm -hmm. So through college, I'm working back a house cooking and we're drinking and we're doing drugs. Right. Um, every night we got at least two pitchers of beer, a PBR and a shot of tequila. But pretty much throughout the whole shift, I was drinking rum and Cokes and doing stuff like that. Yeah. And, you know, you, you tried to keep up with this high stress situation, a lot of pressure going on. It was a very busy uh, restaurant down at the beach, down at Wrightsville Beach. And so we were just going, going, going. And the drugs helped, right? I mean, they helped me keep going until they kind of stopped. You know, so I do this stuff. I, I deal with this environment through drug use and alcoholic use. And the next day I feel terrible. So I'm never like really myself. So I had to keep catching up. Mm. I keep building this tolerance. So the same drugs that worked, a week ago aren't working anymore. Yeah. So it's taking more. Well, now there goes my money. You know, I'm spending more money on these drugs and now I'm stressed out about money situation. It just starts getting in this real 
bad cycle. All the other people I'm around, they're doing the same stuff. We're kind of justifying our use and doing all this, you know, it's all right because we have to deal with the pressures of the job. Um, I failed out of college one time. And so when I told my parents, hey, mom and dad, the school that you've been paying for me to attend, I have failed out of. So at this point, do they have any idea about your drug use? They, they have an idea. They think I'm a, it's a bit excessive, um, but they don't know it's to the extent. They think there's, it's more mental illness based. So he's going through depression. He has anxiety and he's coping, it, coping with it in a poor way. He's drinking mm-hmm. too much, smoking a little weed. I don't, they didn't know about the hardcore drug use. Um, but what that made me do is basically stop going to classes. I couldn't ever get up. I was also very nervous to be around normal people because yeah. I was always high and weird and still had that anxiety just on my back all the time. Um, so I failed out. But the day I told them that I had failed out of college, they had just done an Ironman. So an Ironman is a two-mile swim in open water, mm-hmm. 112-mile bike ride, and then running a marathon. Both of your parents had done Both this. of them, yeah. yeah. So they're very athletic people. Yeah, that's an and, understatement. Yeah. And hey, mom, <laughs> I failed out of college because I can't get off the couch. You know, here they're doing like this extreme sports right. and I can't even get myself to go to school. And so it's kind of like th- that, like in hindsight, looking back on that, it's like, my gosh, what? How did they handle the news? I mean, you have to imagine they were disappointed. They were disappointed. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, they, they still had care and compassion and, and all that. Um, and they've always cared for me. The best thing my mom ever did, though, was kind of fast forward a few years to that Walmart parking lot. I go home to take a shower. Mom says, son, I love you, but you can't stay here. You can't take a shower. We got to find someplace you can go. And that's what kind of got me into healing transitions. Mm. Um, So even though they had care and compassion, the most caring thing they ever did was put up a wall and say, we love you so much. We're not going to continue to enable this behavior. Yeah. Um, You mentioned early on when you were, when you're starting to tell your story. And I wonder if you've noticed a pattern working at healing transitions, or if you think just from what you've heard from other people who have either are going through the recovery process or, or have uh, been involved in any way, the idea of what started out as something looking for community Mm -hmm. slowly or quickly turned into an isolating thing. Right. Um, Do you think that's a common narrative in people's stories that struggle with addiction? I, absolutely. Yeah. I look at addiction as isolation. I look at recovery as connection. Mm. So at the end of most people's story, they say, you know, I hit rock bottom. I was all alone. I had nothing. I'd broken all my relationships, thrown everything away. Oh yeah. And it was just me and my thoughts and I didn't know how to overcome this. So stuff. you think a lot of people, that's what they mean when they say rock bottom. I've completely isolated myself. Right. There's nothing left. There's right. no connection. I've severed absolutely I everything. Burned them all, burned all the bridges. Wow. Yeah. Have nothing. And so creating connection is, is huge in recovery. And that's something that I got to experience while going through the healing transitions program. So when you were talking about access, mm-hmm. um, what do you mean when you say access? So healing transitions doesn't cost anything to its participants. Okay. So when I'm homeless and addicted to drugs, I often do not have a job. And sure. if I do have a job, it often does not have insurance. Right. How am I to pay for any type of treatment? very difficult by giving people access to a recovery place where they can come and stay and get peer-based recovery. So surrounded by love and support, 
taught about the disease of addiction, shown, hey, this is what happens in addiction, but this is how you overcome it. Mm -hmm. It's a long-term program. I spent 14 months there. People spend 12, 12 months to maybe 18 months. That's a long time of, of getting this help. Yeah. So why that's important is because I had been using drugs at the point I went to healing transitions for 10 years. It often takes more than 30, 60, or 90 days to overcome 10 years worth of substance use. I'm a, I'm a youngster. Are most programs 30, 60 days, the court-ordered yeah. ones? Yeah. And, and most like treatment centers are usually 30 to 60 days, and that's usually what insurance will pay out. Okay. And so that's why, though, that, that's why that term of time is usually there, because right. that's what insurance will pay. That's what they're paying for. Yeah. Um, so getting access to a place where I didn't have to pay, but I could still stay and get recovery was huge. Yeah. And having the length of time to stay there. When I left, I, I had gone to, I think, 500-some mutual aid meetings. That's like NA or AA meetings, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and just having access to, to that network of people, to those groups, was huge. I don't know how I really would have found that by myself. Yeah. Um, I had also gone to, I had a previous treatment experience, uh, age 21 or 22 or something like that. I had gone to a 30-day program. Insurance paid for three weeks, so... You know, got myself cleaned up and enough to kind of learn about addiction. And then it was, you know, goodbye. And I, I got right back into my old job, right back in the same old environment. And, yeah, you know, I was, I think I drank a beer the, the next day out of that place. Um, but when I was there, I didn't have the right mindset. So I was a young kid and I was looking at some of these people in the room and they were a lot older. So I said, well, I still got some time. I could still go out and wild, be wild and do crazy. And, I, you know, I'll make it back here when I'm 40 or something like that. Thankfully, it didn't take that long, and I got back at age 25 or 26. Um, but yeah, just, just having the ability to go to a place and not have to worry about how am I going to fund this. Yeah. It gave me the opportunity to just look at myself and make, cha- make those internal changes that I need to, to have made. Yeah. We've had, we've had some other guests on the show that have shared some of their story of addiction as well as I spent some time working at a, a drug rehab center called Teen Challenge when I was oh, yeah. going to school in Minneapolis. I worked there as like the night shift yeah. for a couple of years. And so I didn't really work directly with the, with the students or the participants in the program because mm-hmm. they were primarily asleep. My job was to go in like once an hour and shine a flashlight in there and make sure that they weren't, they were in bed and that they weren't doing something that they shouldn't be right. doing. That was kind of the totality of my role there. But the, um, you said earlier in the, in the intro that my ability to break free is not something that I can do on my own. Mm-hmm. Which I think a lot of people I've heard that the best way to help somebody out, like you were saying, your parents saying, like, I can't continue to enable. And then I've heard some people say, like, no, I don't want anything to do with you until you get your stuff cleared up, which seems like the same thing. But does that feed into, I guess what I'm asking is, does that feed into the isolation? Like, you're dealing with addiction, you want to change, but you don't know how to change. Mm -hmm. And now I don't want anything to do with you until you change. Does that feed into the isolation or is that the right thing to do? Mm, I think so. It's hard for me to answer as the right thing. I think there's oh, yeah, going to, yeah. uh, everyone's just so different in their recovery. And what I think is the right thing is for families to get support. So there's a lot of different family support sure. groups out there because addiction just doesn't affect that mm-hmm. one person. It didn't affect just me. It affected my entire family. Yeah. And so for them to be able to go to other support groups to say, for other families to say, Hey, this is what we did and it's been helpful. 
or we tried that and it didn't work. What do you guys think? You got right. any other options? So it's probably more likely a tool that should be best used at an appropriate time yeah. than it is like a rubber stamp. Like here's the three things. You do to yeah, help. exactly. Um, I, I do think having compassion, lowering expectations, having patience with the person. I think if, you know, one thing that's really common is saying, yes, I'll help you out. I'll, I will take you to a treatment center. I will take you somewhere you can get help. But other than that, I'm not really going to support your habit or really be in a lot of contact with you. Yeah. But if you need help, I'm willing to take you to the place that will get you some help. You mentioned uh, that it's peer-based peer based. Where, where you're working now. Yeah. So what are some of the other options that aren't peer-based? I assume based on what you're saying, the importance of peer-based has got to be like, it's about building connections back into your life. So helping you be around other people has to be a huge, healthy part of recovery program. Yeah. What are some of the non-peer-based options that exist out there? So uh, the power I see in uh, peer-based recovery support is sharing those similar experiences, right? Mm -hmm. And oftentimes when, in, in my world of addiction, I was kind of, I felt like I was looked down upon by authority figures. So the police kind of looked down on me. Yeah. The therapist kind of looked down on me. They had more power. My parents looked down on me and they, these folks didn't really do that, but that's my perception of it. When I was in this program with peers, we looked, we were at the same level. So mm -hmm. we could connect that way. It wasn't, I didn't feel powerless. I felt powerful to, to help each other out. Yeah. Um, other, other options would be just kind of, uh, just various treatment centers where they do group support, but then you probably get a clinician that will work one-on-one -on -one with you. Yeah. Um, there's medication assisted treatment. So that's the evidence-based best practice for dealing some, with someone that has an opioid use disorder. So medication assisted treatment is stuff like Suboxone and Methadone. Uh, I've been proven very effective and we often link a lot of the people from the uh, rapid responder program to these medication assisted treatment programs so they stop overdosing. Are they primarily those, those medicine assisted programs? Are they primarily to help manage through those process of detox? Is it a temporary solution or is it like a long-term medical solution? It's, it's both. So if someone doesn't want to get on one of these um, medications, but they do want a medically assisted detox, they can do that. They can kind of taper someone down from that high dose of, of opiate that they were using to um, abstinent. But oftentimes we recommend them getting involved with the program, stabilizing on the dose of medication. And then, and that could take uh, six months. It could be a year. It could be five years. It could be the rest of their lives. Mm. But what it does is it, it kind of blocks out opioids. So if they were to put some, some opioids in it, they're not going to feel that. And what that's doing is preventing overdose. So in the spectrum of addiction, because some people... They might have alcoholism or an opioid use disorder, but it might not be as severe as someone else's. Yeah. So people with severe over opioid use disorders that are constantly overdosing and stuff like that, they, the medication is very helpful to reduce cravings, to block the opioids so these people can live. The more overdoses you have, the more likely you are to have a fatal overdose. Yeah. So how do you, as Healing Transitions, help really diagnose where people are on the spectrum of addiction? Um, it kind of just comes out and we, we're not going to diagnose anyone. Okay. We're going to work and guide them through their recovery. Is there like a, like a agreed upon, this is the spectrum of addiction and here's what it looks like? I don't think there's an agreed upon thing. I, yeah. I think um, we, we have people with high problem complexity. So I was saying earlier, like we're often the last house on the block. After healing transitions is pretty much the woods. So you've, a lot of our population have gone through these various treatment centers. They haven't worked yeah. for whatever reason. Now they're at HT, 
And now they're trying to figure well, it all let's out. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause I wonder if you know some of the numbers, like what is, cause I think a lot of people who live in Cary, which is kind of an uppity mm-hmm. kind of neighborhood in uppity. I mean, like we're, we're strong upper middle-class people and uh, we've got good jobs, et cetera. But we also still have a homeless problem. Mm-hmm. Like um, I know that during the summer, especially, and um, when you say the woods, there's a lot of people that live in the woods in various places yeah. around Gary. And so I, I don't know those percentages. Um, Is it like dozens of people, hundreds of people? So I would say in Raleigh or in Wake County, we have 300 people between our men's and women's campus, 180 okay. at the men's, 120 at the women's. And so, that's just your one program. That's just our one program. There's the Salvation Army. There's the Raleigh Rescue Mission. There's the Women's Center downtown. Um, so if we didn't exist, there's 300 people homeless on the streets of Raleigh yeah. right now. Our program primarily deals with substance use as caused their homelessness. I haven't been paying very close attention, but I remember there was a season, and this could have been years and years ago, where people were debating whether or not addiction should be categorized as a disease by the AMA. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in the world I work in, so in public health. <laughs> You're and, like, I don't care what they think. We just know what we do. <laughs> well, like everyone that I'm dealing with, it's not a question. It's absolutely a disease. The DSM Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that kind of helps people with uh, diagnose various mental illnesses. Mm-hmm. It has alcohol use disorder, stimulant use disorder, hallucinogen use disorder. So it has yeah. all these disorders in the book and these are all diseases. Um, I think thinking of addiction, it's, it's really multifaceted. So it's got the, the physical hooks to it. So right. the tolerance and withdrawal stuff, but oftentimes it started, um, you know, dealing with someone's background. A lot of people that end up at healing transitions or any treatment center or have an addiction, a lot of folks have a trauma in the past. And we yeah. usually use drugs to kind of block those unwanted feelings of trauma or like for me, it was right. insecurities. Um, so, and then, you know, what's your family life like? Um, do you have a history of alcoholism or substance use in your family tree? Yeah. There's just a lot of different things that There's go a lot into of components. it. Yeah. And then it's not like. It's too simple to say it's a disease. Here's some medicine, wait it out. Right. Yeah, uh, because it's got psychological components that need the kind of treatment that you would use for psychological components. Mm-hmm. And then, like you said, it could be trauma. It could be um, dealing with hurts, which is like healing, mm-hmm. which is which is sometimes physical and sometimes psychological, and oftentimes both. And well, then think about it, someone's environment. Yeah. So if they grow up with an uh, abusive father or no father at all, and Mom's always running around. Maybe they're left at home a lot. Maybe there's police sirens in the neighborhood. Maybe there's gunshots. Maybe just the neighborhood itself yeah. is not great. You know, I'm I'm a white male that's very healthy. I have a lot of privileges given to me that are just just there. Yeah. Other populations don't have that same stuff, and you know, they're maybe can fall into addiction a little bit more easily because it's just much more available. Um, a white kid from Cary. Oh, certainly wouldn't suffer the same access issues. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So making sure everyone has access to treatment is, is really key. Yeah. And that's where the community component comes in. So I'm, I love the opportunity to be on this podcast because I get to share my story and yeah. hopefully people in the community will say, Hey, what's at HT? How are they taking people from 
addicted to drugs and homeless to yeah. having a job, having a place to stay that's sober and having a great network of, of people to call upon and yeah. doing great things, getting advanced degrees at colleges. And we mentioned we were talking a little bit before the show started about Josh and I met at church and you said, oh, that church played a, a role in my recovery yeah. as well because you mentioned that they either t they took you guys over there for meetings or something? Yeah. So on the weekends at HT, people from the community actually come to pick the guys and ladies up and take them to various AA meetings, NA meetings, um, or to church. Um, you actually, in order to progress through the program, you have to get a certain number of meetings per week. Okay. So on the weekends, they're released, they get taken to these meeting places and then brought back. Um, and so a lot of people find, you know, there's, there's just a lot of different pathways to recovery. Yeah. So some people will find uh, that their path is AA, others NA. Some people are cognitive-based, smart recovery. Some people have a Buddhist-based path, uh, refuge recovery. Some people don't really care. They just did drugs and alcohol and everything else. Drug addicts anonymous. Um, some people, church plays a huge role in their life. Yeah. Um, you well, know. the reason I brought it up is because something that Mike says, uh, who's the pastor there every once in a while, and I wanted to talk to you about it, is that there is a, a, a thrill that you get just in general life. Like you go on a great vacation and it's great, but mm -hmm. that kind of fades. Or you do, you get a promotion and you feel great about it, but then like six months later, it's a job and you're not, you're not excited about it anymore. And there is a thrill that comes with helping somebody, being somebody that God uses to make an impact in somebody's life that lasts in mm -hmm. a way that's completely different. Do you find that to be true in the work that you're doing now? Oh yeah. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Just yeah. helping people, you know, I just, and whatever it looks like, I don't necessarily have to help someone that's in addiction. If I just help yeah. others I, do anything. I bet you have some pretty crazy stories. And so you're in the rapid response team. So you're, you're putting yourself in a situation where you're probably meeting people at their rock bottom. Yeah, they're at a very vulnerable time in their life yeah. following overdose. And so I, I get out in the field every once in a while, but I really have to give huge props to my rapid responder right now, Rusty. He's incredible at meeting people where they're at, mm -hmm. not judging, offering help, just doing going above and beyond. He's Yesterday he woke up at like 6.30 to take some guy to get his medication so he could get to his job on time. Yeah, And it's little things like that. But that made a huge impact on that guy's right. not only day, but whole life. You guys are literally becoming like the first step back to connection for people. Right. Wow. Well, EMS said, hey, we're going and we're reversing these folks. Yeah. A lot of them are saying, hey, I don't want to be taken to the emergency room. So as EMS, you, you can't just sure. force them to go. But their they, job is to help like reverse is I see medical side of it. Like that's, yeah, that's their, their role. That's their big role. Yeah. So actually Wake EMS is, um, they have a they're kind of nationally known for their advanced practice paramedic program. So what they're doing is they're visiting people preventatively. And I think it started because they were going out and seeing so many people that had an, an alcohol use disorder or, or some type of drug problem right. going to the emergency room. And so they said, well, let's, let's get this special unit of people to go and visit these folks that are most likely to go to the ER mm -hmm. and hopefully step in before they have to make that journey. Um, and so that's what we're trying to do is just prevent those right. things. So and then that's where healing transitions comes in because you guys have this program that is access for everybody. Yeah. yeah. That's awesome. I have to imagine that from your perspective, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, that you walk through this situation and now you're on the other side of it. And 
through that process, learned so much about yourself and so much about the kind of man that you wanted to be that ultimately you decided to go back to work for the organization that provided that for you so that you could be that for other people. What I get to see is it's often such a small window. Yeah. So people had said stuff to me at various points and I remember what they said, but I don't really, the the person has faded from my life. Mm -hmm. Um, The most important thing I found was when I'm of service to someone else, I'm not thinking about me. And Mm -hmm. after the deed or whatever is done, I just feel good. But I also have to actively seek to be of service. So I can't just wait around and think, okay, something's going to come to me. I have to go out and try to find something to do to be good. Yeah. So what I often tell guys in class is when you go through a door, look back to see if you can hold the door for someone. If you can hold the door for them. Yeah. But even if you, if there's no one behind you, at least you're taking the second to, to look out to see if you can help. If you're in a grocery store and you're walking through the parking lot, is there someone's cart that you might be able to take back to the, to the thing? Can you help some lady that, you know, an older lady that might need help uh, carrying groceries, like actively seek out ways to help people. And, um, we, we started the Oak city recovery run club and what I've really, so what it is, it's bringing the recovery community, uh, connecting them with the, uh, running community. Okay. So how do you break stigma? How do you bring community together? Well, you show people aren't just their disease. Sure. So I'm, I'm Justin, I'm in recovery. I have an addiction to right. alcohol That's and other so drugs. That's so true of everything, not just recovery. We so badly want to categorize people as humans oh my gosh, and just yeah. be like, oh, that's that person. Yeah. Let me label, label, label. Yeah. yeah. But then as soon as you, you know, develop a relationship with somebody, that's where people start to get their, uh, racism, their, their homophobia, their, uh, whatever thing that they're currently doing with challenge when they're like, Oh, but that person's not like mm. the villain that I created in my head. That's a generic stereotype of whatever that problem is. Right. right. That guy that's in the homeless shelter right now, isn't a former yeah. helicopter paramedic who used to save everyone's lives yeah. or the catering chef from Las Vegas who, you know, had a uh, very great business and now works at a well-established Durham restaurant. Um, the people you meet in there, it's all over the scale. Right. You know, I got people that have been homeless for 30 years up to people that have been very successful entrepreneurs, chefs, all this other stuff. Um, So it certainly doesn't discriminate. And we wanted to show that with the run club. We wanted to bring the community together because exercise is great for your mental health. Uh, It's, you know, I started running and I had a lot of support with the other run clubs in Raleigh, but I noticed those clubs all met at a brewery at the end. Mm. I said, man, it'd be nice if we didn't have to feel any pressure to drink. And so we started that club uh, in 2017. It was me and a, a friend of mine, Matt, and he was actually a participant at HT at the time. And he's since gone on to do really good stuff. Um, I think he's moving into a second house now. I got a great job. Anyway, yeah. you know, thriving life. But it started with three people out there. We'd run every Tuesday night. Last Tuesday, I think we had 60 people. We regularly have 60 to 70 to 80 on Saturday mornings. Um, we had a guy named Charlie Engel. Charlie's uh, ran across the Sahara Desert, so that's one of his many claims to fame. Yeah, Charlie's an amazing guy. Oh, you he, had him on the podcast. Yeah, if you guys scroll yeah, back, yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it's like episode three or whatever. Yeah. 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 So he, he came out a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago, 
and ran for 27 hours around Dorothea Dix Park. A little I three read mile, about that. A little three mile he just loop. do his three mile loops. Yeah. Like, I'm cheer for Charlie. Right. Because he's training for the new 5.8 yeah. crazy, ridiculous what? scheme he's got cooked up. Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> I think he's leaving in a, maybe next week. Wow. Yeah. Oh. But anyway, to have Charlie out there running these laps to see people regular runners that aren't connected with HT mingling with the guys in the shelter. Right. And we're just all learning about each other Yeah, and we're connecting. And how now, do you, you guys got like a Facebook group. How do you find out? Yeah, about Facebook. We got, we're Oak city, RRC.com, um, Facebook, Oak city recovery run club. There's a WREL just ran a story on us last night. So you can check them. Oh, sweet. Yeah. We'll put links in the show notes. That's yeah. awesome, okay, man. Great. Josh and I committed early on to start running a marathon and then, um, or start training for a marathon. Okay. And I, I told him we were talking about it last week. I think the fatal flaw we did is we didn't sign up for a marathon yep. to hold ourselves accountable and like be like, that's the date that we're going to run it. So I've been trying to get back into running. It's crazy. Running is an interesting thing, right? Because yeah. I got I got back in shape. So I was doing, I don't know, like three, three months-ish. I was doing pretty well, running a couple times a week. could do a seven, eight miles pretty mm-hmm. consistently. And then took like a month off. And now it's like, I'm gassing running like one and a half miles. Yeah. Oh my yeah. Well, I have a good news, a good news update. I got a puppy and I'm now like running with the puppy. That's good. So we'll see how that relationship goes. But healthy. it's holding me accountable. Yeah. I'm like three day, three times a day on average, if I can fit that in. I was, I'll, taking, I'll go out and I was taking my dog running for a while and she was very healthy and happy. And then I stopped running and we took her to the vet for something else. And she's like, that's kind of a big dog. So I took her for like a mile and a half walkie joggy thing the other day. And yeah. she like, was slow getting up the yeah. stairs. She was like, oh, "Why did you do yeah. that?" <laughs> Oak City Run Club. We should check that out. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, come on. How how far do you guys normally run when you run? We got a one mile loop, a three mile loop, and a five mile loop. Oh, good. We, oh, we, we can handle we, that. So we can stage it up. Yeah. I can even bring my puppy. Yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of dogs that come on out. Oh, um, we have people that walk. We got people that are super fast. Yeah. Rocking and rolling on that five mile. We got all just different types of paces. Yeah. But we, what we're also doing is most of these guys and ladies are in the shelter. So we have a bunch of shoes that have been donated through Ronology. Oh, cool. And so what we'll do is we'll have them check out a pair of shoes. And after five times of checking that pair of shoes out, they get to keep them. So Ronology is our big partner in this. We, we were just like, hey, come out of the club and you get some shoes. But people were just coming out one time, snagging some shoes and heading on. Gotcha. So now we're, we're trying to provide the necessities so they can run. I mean, if I'm out there and I don't have anything but bands on, sure. you know, that's going to hurt my knees. What we're also doing is registering people for races. So we want them out in the community to feel the thrill of what it's like to run across the finish line and have people yeah. cheering on. And whenever you go to a 5K, 10K marathon, whatever it is, you see a lot of happy people. You do. And so let's get these guys who have had a tough run at it around happy, positive people. Yeah. And all the people that blow you away. Like I did a 5k when I was training before and I was like three quarters of the way to the back, but the runners, the community are so nice that everybody who finishes stays there right. and they're clapping on the way and like, good work. You did it. Right. And you're like, yeah, that's great. And you're trying to play it off. Like it's not cool. Yeah, but you're yeah, like, yeah right. that is cool. I really needed yeah. to hear that. Right now. <laughs> but yeah, that's awesome. So, and what I've kind of seen is that, that moment where people are running and they're enjoying this stuff. Yeah. That could be the moment that they remember if they leave the program, if they do have a return to use. So after my first treatment experience going out, I couldn't, I couldn't forget that I had the disease of alcoholism or addiction. And so that kind of stuck with me. So what I want people to have, if they do have a return to use, I want them to think about the run club and the, the good times they had and what, 
yeah. what the positivity at HT was. So then they can think, you know what? Let me try and get back to that because yeah. it's free. It's accessible and they want to help me out. We have one guy. Um, so Charlie did his run last year too for 26 hours. And one guy had started at the run club for like two or three weeks before that. He has since lost 60 pounds. He runs almost every single day. He ran for, I think, 64 miles that night with Charlie. Wow. And it's, I mean, the transformation is incredible. He's getting his family back, got his kids, all this good stuff. He's he's going and placing it in, in, at races, like yeah. he's third in his age group uh, consistently. We okay. have another guy that went through HT. And on December 21st, he's going to be running the Oakwood 24. So this guy, John Fry, is a beast. He grew up um, on a Christmas tree farm up in, I think, Avery County, North Carolina. And so when I always think of John, I think, I think when they told him to go get the Christmas trees, he just went and yanked them out of the ground. He's <laughs> just a beast. But he's going to be doing, he's involved with this group called F3. I've heard of those guys. Very yeah. cool I have a funny group. F3 story. Oh, yeah? They're very friendly gentlemen. I've never been but I've been to a couple parades around town and they have a float in the parade or they'll walk behind a dance crew or whatever. And it's uh, it's a loosely based, he can tell you more about it. I don't know much about it, but every time I see them, they stop and talk to me. And my wife's like, after they're done talking, cause they're just very friendly. Yeah. And, um, and I have that face, like, come talk to me, I guess. And so my wife would be like, Oh, do you know those guys from church or where did you know those guys? I said, I know I didn't know them. But it happened, like, I think it happened more than once. And it made me think, like, there's something about me that gives off a vibe. Like, this guy should work out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, oh, so close. You look like you could use some exercise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, tell us a little bit about a three. Uh, faith, fellowship, and fitness. And right. so they have a lot of kind of calisthenic workouts throughout Raleigh, throughout Holly Springs, Apex, Cary. Right. And they're early morning. So you're yeah. getting up at like 530. I follow their social media and it's always dark out yeah. when they post pictures. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you're getting up, you're going working out with guys and afterwards you're fellowshipping, talking and stuff like that. And so uh, it's a community. It's a community. It's a great community. Yeah. I mean, huge, huge, great network. I often encourage, because they bring a group up, they bring two groups up to Healing Transitions. Yeah. And I'm encouraging all the guys, hey, get to know these folks because there's some, there's some, you know, Raleigh players in that. Like sure. they have good jobs. They want to help guys out. They're just good people. Is it important when you're in that phase of recovery to just have places where it's not about recovery, but you just feel like you're with regular folks doing I, regular stuff? Well, that was kind of a driving force behind the run club. Okay. So if it, it started on Tuesday nights because Tuesday nights you had to wait around to a meeting. Mm. Well, that's boring. And you've been in this recovery stuff all day long. Wow. And so it's like, how do I get out and just be active and do something different? So, I, you know, for me personally, I want to have a, a robust recovery life, but I also want to have a thriving life outside of recovery. Right. It's kind of interconnected. So I'm using the principles I'm learning with recovery in my regular life. Right. and It's making my regular life a lot better. Uh, but I want to do exciting things. I want to go hiking. I want to go biking. I want to go do triathlon and all this other stuff. Yeah. Have you done a triathlon? Yeah, I recently did the um, half Ironman Crystal Coast Half Booty. It was up in New Bern. So it was my first kind of big triathlon. Is swimming the hardest part? That's my theory. For me, it is. Yeah. I just sink. Yeah. <laughs> but luckily, when some of these things, if the water temperature is cold enough, you get to wear a wetsuit. Ah. Well, those wetsuits got a little float to them. Oh, nice. You can get in there. And you, just gotta, you can buy one and just put a buoy in the back. Yeah. Gotta, yeah. <laughs> well, you can, so you can wear a wetsuit in any open water swim. But if you wear them and when the temperature's at a certain degree, too too hot. Like, you, you don't get fried. Well, you get kind of disqualified too. Like you oh, can't okay. place in your age group. <laughs> uh, but my dad's at a point, he's like, 
I don't care. I'm yeah. wearing the wetsuit. I'm, I'm not trying to, to win any yeah. trophies. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> but that day, so man, we get out of the water. Things are rocking and rolling, looking good. I get on the bike, downpour. So it's. I think it. I think it poured on us for 50 miles out of the 56. Mm. You know, just getting hammered. Sideways rain, face rain, little back rain. Not enough back rain to yeah. push me forward. Uh, but. Getting off the bike, it cleared up. We're running. You run a half marathon after that. Yeah. Great run. You know, cool to be, have my family down there, other people that I knew in the in the triathlon community. Do you find in that situation that you're looking forward to the run? Like the other two are necessary evils since you primarily do running? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I knew that uh, running's the strong spot. Yeah. And what I like to do I is- I bet Josh I, would be excited about the bike part. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The biking's fun. I'm not as strong. You got some powerful cats out there on that bike. And oh, so yeah. they're just burning it down. Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm thinking is I'm I got catch you on the run. Yeah, we'll catch you. And that's yeah. what I do. Go you know, in. I'm just I'm trying to pluck people off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cause it's rare somebody excels at all three of those things. Right? right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, because I've heard it said, and I wonder from your experience how true it is. When it comes to um recovery from addiction, you're taking a bad habit. How important has it been in your story to replace it with another habit? So what I'm trying to do, I, I think I'm not trying to replace anything. So something that was big for me is finding a power greater than myself. Mm -hmm. So I think when I started doing that and putting gratitude lists to my life and being of service yeah. to others, those kind of habits or whatever sure. started putting me further away from that drink. So what I'm trying to do is put more as many things as I can between mm -hmm. me and that drink. So it's God, it's recovery, it's a good family life, it's a great relationship with my girlfriend, yeah. it's exercise, it's reading interesting stuff, it's just whatever I can. Now, when I start noticing some of those things slipping, that's when I have to be like, all right, I got I to gotta do something else to kind of regain some footing here. Mm. If, I, if I notice that I'm not making my bed, something's up. Cause that's the first thing I do in the morning. You get up and make your bed. So if, if that starts happening, okay, I need to readjust. And I think what recovery has taught me is the ability to kind of see things that I might not have seen when I was in yeah. an addiction. Yeah. Have a little insight. I think, you know, meditation has been huge with that. Letting thoughts kind of pass, recognizing they're just thoughts and, you know, I can react or, or not react to them. Right. You kept mentioning the, these kind of what I would call micro habits. And it's those small things that create a difference. I don't know, like in our perception, in the way that we're living our life that over time lead to identity change. Mm -hmm. Like we used to be a person that didn't hold doors, which means like you just, I mean, you take that as a really simple example, which means I was selfish. I didn't care about the people around me, but now I consistently open doors for mm -hmm. people. And I've been doing this for three to six months. I'm a caring, compassionate person who cares about people. And you can have that tiny thing make a huge impact on the perception of yourself mm -hmm. that I think is such a big deal for people. Jeez. Well, let's talk a little bit about stuff we can do to help out. We got the Oak City Recovery Run Club. We've got Healing Transitions. We'll put links to the websites mm -hmm. in the show notes. Is there anything else interesting in the era you want to tell people about that you guys got going on? So right now we're in the middle of a capital campaign for Healing Transitions oh, really? to expand okay. both campuses. So this is how it remains free. Yes. Well, we're at capacity okay. at both campuses, like way at capacity. And you have 300 men and women. Yeah. So last October and during the winter time, we will consistently have 320, 330 people wow. trying to get 300 spots. We don't want to turn people away. We don't want to say you got to wait two weeks for treatment. 
because these again very vulnerable, highly complex folks. Sure, if they leave very important two weeks in their life. Right, in addiction, two weeks is forever. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to get the next fix as quickly as I can, and so if I have that window of clarity where I want to say I want recovery, we want to be there. Right. Um, Right now with the opioid thing going on, you leave. You know, you don't have access to a place like this. You go out, you're feeling sick, you take a shot. That could be the last one. Uh, so we always want to be accessible. We're very, what we do well is we're accessible to first responders. So EMS, instead of taking someone to the emergency room, can drop them off in our detox. Okay. Now the person's surrounded by loving people trying to help them out. We're monitoring how the, the withdrawals are going and so on. Right. Police do the same thing. So instead of taking someone to jail, they right. take them here. And you guys are committed to their long-term care versus like, let's just get them patched up so they can leave. Right. And if they, if they say, Hey, I want to leave, there's right. no locks on the door. Sure. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, Hey, can we figure out some resources we can get you linked up to? And then can we follow up in a couple of weeks to just check on how you're doing? Mm-hmm. So before we were really good at following up with our program graduates. These are people that have, you know, they've gone 12, 18 months there and man, we do a great job following up. What we weren't doing a good job with was the people that left after two weeks or 30 days. Mm. They're the most vulnerable. So what we, what we implemented, we got a full-time employee, we got a database, and we started following up with people that had left early on because we need to make, we need to be checking in on them. We, we go to a point where we would get their cell phone number, but a lot of times their cell phone would get disconnected, Mm. but they would go to a McDonald's or wherever, find Wi-Fi and get on Facebook and do messenger. So we created a, a Facebook account to where we could message these folks. Hey, how's it going? Is there anything we can do? Here's a link to all these different resources in the county. So if you mm-hmm. need housing, clothing, whatever you need, you can That's find awesome. it here. Yeah. But that was kind of this forethought in, in kind of how we're moving our organization to be thinking about everybody. Um, so anyway, we're putting mats on the floor. And these are cold weather mats that are supposed to be used in the winter for overflow. We have so many mats on our floor that they... There's not enough room in our shelter, so we have to go to our lobby and classrooms to put these mats on the floor so people can have a place to stay at night. Mm. Again, we're accessible 24-7. We don't want to turn people away. Right. We also have- So one of the things you guys do is when it gets cold, you allow the homeless community to come there. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's a a system called White Flag. Right. And so- That's that's what it was. Yep. All the the various uh, shelters will put a white flag out, and if it's below, I think, 36 degrees, you can come in. You don't have to get involved with the program at all and you leave the next day or whatever it is. And we'll get you dinner and get you a hot meal and all that good stuff. Um, we also have a guiding principle of, of as many times as it takes. So addiction and recovery from addiction is often not a one straight shot. You know, yeah. I had the, the previous treatment thing. I had 90 day, my first time in healing transitions where that story comes from. Mm. I had actually already been in healing transitions for 90 days at that point. Yeah. And then I left Got around uh, kind of the wrong crowd again. Right. Didn't put good recovery supports in my life. Had the had the return to use. Um, so we don't want to say, "Up, oh, you've done it three times. You, right. You've relapsed three times. That's it. You can't come back." No, we're going to keep coming back. Have them keep coming back. I like maybe, that as many yeah. times as it takes. Right, and maybe they get it on that fifteenth time. Right, you know. Maybe they never get it, but they're not out. But they spent their life fighting it, doing something proactive about it. Exactly. And we have some people that are super high problem complexity, just have no supports, have never had supports in their lives. Yeah. And they'll come stay with us for a month, and then they might go out, and they might use again. But when they're with us, they're they're learning stuff, and they're not out in the community, maybe sleeping in a tent next to uh, some shop owner's place. So how would a listener get involved in you guys' capital campaign? 
So I think right now, what we want to do is spread awareness. So come take a tour of the place. We have artwork by Thomas Sayer. Thomas is the guy that did the big three rings at the art museum. Okay. So he's got some incredible stuff over there to see the process, to see how... Is that like an auction you can bid on the artwork or... No, that's kind of, it's, it's just an incredible piece that gotcha. people should you just come, to come look, look at. at it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, it's an incredible process to see how someone can go from detox to having, you know, every, their whole family back in their life yeah. to where they're moving out, they're a productive member of society. Do you guys have volunteer opportunities there? We do. We have a lot of volunteer opportunities. We have people making resource packets. We have people you can you can um, help out in the garden. You can help out um, with serving food and stuff like that. Um, we yeah. take donations. So we have a thrift store and all those proceeds come right back to us. Is a thrift store another thrift store in the area that you get the proceeds from or is it in, on your campus? It's not on our campus. It's uh, off Capitol Boulevard, right where that Lewisburg split is. It's the shopping center on the left there. Yeah. Okay. What's it called? It's just, it's called um, Recovered Treasures. Okay. But the sign just says thrift store. But you can you can drop off any donations at Healing Transitions, men's or women's campus. If you have okay. big furniture and you say, hey, can you come pick it up? We'll come pick it up. Gotcha. Very cool. And then with the Run Club, you guys, uh, you can go to oakcityrrc.com. And you guys uh, check out this article. I'll try to link it, the WRL article that's coming out. You said they just did it on you guys yesterday? Yep. Cool. It's on the website. That's fun, man. Yeah, just come out and run or walk or just, you know, get involved. Yeah. Well, Justin, you have a very inspiring story. Thank you for coming and sharing it. I think, uh, man, getting it done. Getting it done. Well, thanks for the opportunity. This is great. Thank you for what you do and serving in our community and helping out people that at a time in their life where they really need it to have somebody committed to walk with them through that process. That's That's a beautiful thing, man. It is beautiful. We're thankful to have you on here, Justin. As many times as it takes. It's good stuff. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, guys. Do this stuff. We love making this stuff for you. You can help us out by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Get unstuck. Tell a better story and have a good answer to the question. What are you doing today?